this morning if you have a copy of the scriptures or you want to pull it up on your device. We're going to look at a handful of verses from the ninth chapter of Matthew. So if you've been around, we've been studying a few verses at a time through the book of Philippians for the last few weeks. And we'll pick that up again in about three weeks, Lord willing. But we want to pause this morning and for the next couple of weeks as we enter into Christmas and New Year's. We want to kind of pause and redirect our focus for just a moment. As you turn into Matthew 9, I can share with you that, as I've said before, you probably, if you've been around, you've probably heard me talk about it. If you've been around me, even just personally, one of the more impactful experiences I've had in my life is the opportunities that I've had in years past to go and visit villagers in a really remote area in Ecuador and get to go and spend time with them and really probably learn more from them than teach them much of anything, the way they live life and their gladness and their love for each other. It's just a beautiful place to be. It's very remote, very destitute. They don't have a lot, um, but just being around them is a ton of fun. I, I was thinking recently, the first time that I ever went, I was bombarded with a lot of information, big two, three pages worth of bullet points about what to pack, what not to pack, what to do to be prepared for the, the climate there and everything that you would have to adjust to and being there. And one of the key things that was said to me over and over and over and over and over again was drink a lot of water. Drink a lot of water. Drink a lot of water. And they wanted you to drink a lot of water because you were going to be high up in the mountains and at an altitude you'd likely never been at before, and it's going to be harder to breathe. And I, and I just remember hearing drink a lot of water, and I thought, okay, back in that day, I, I actually drink more water now. Back then, I didn't drink a lot of water, and so I just thought, okay, I'll I'll have a, a water bottle with me, and I'll take a sip every once in a while, and I'll, I'll be fine. It'll be no big deal for me. Back in those days, I was running four miles at a pretty brisk clip every morning, every day of my life, and I thought, man, I'm in pretty good physical fitness. I seem to breathe pretty well. I'm able to pump the lungs pretty well. I'm going to be fine. We'll flash uh, forward into about day three of my very first trip to Ecuador, and, and just a moment where I'm standing on a wood porch, and I start to feel a little wobbly and woozy. And, and it, my first thought really was, is the deck falling apart? Because it was a little sketchy, to be honest. I don't know. They called it two-story. It was like a story and a eh, right? But we were up there on the eh part. And I was like, man, this is not good. And all of a sudden, my head started to spin a little bit. And things went dark. And the next thing I know, I spent about a day and a half in a little bitty closet-like room by myself with one solitary light bulb hanging over my head that was, I mean, it was perfectly like something off the movies. I, I could have been a prisoner of war at this point, right? Just one light bulb hanging over my head, just kind of flickering a little bit, a little dim light. And every once in a while, somebody would come through the door and they would force water down me. And I'd be like, no, no more water. And they would just push it down me, make me take meds, make me take a little bite of something. After about a day and a half, I got better. But what had happened to me was I had not had enough water. And so I got altitude sickness. If you've ever experienced it before, I remember hearing about altitude sickness, you know, I was kind of young in my 20s, I thought I had everything going on for me, if that's where you're at in your 20s, keep going, enjoy those days, right, because there'll come a day where you don't know that, and you'll go, no, I definitely don't, and that's less fun, okay, so, right, I, I thought that I was just going to be fine, I thought I was going to be there, and all of a sudden I'm going, man, I ignored probably the most important things that I could have paid attention to, but I heard it, I was aware of it, I knew that it was important, I would have told you that it was important to drink a lot of water, but I didn't really think that it was going to impact me, and so I failed to pay attention, and I failed to act on it. We can be aware of a reality, and yet, if we don't understand its personal impact on us, then we'll fail to acknowledge it rightly. 
I can take you there really quickly. You remember being in school and your teacher was teaching you algebra or trigonometry? And I don't even know what a logarithm is. I'm being a million. I'm not trying to be like the the play dumb guy. I don't know what one is, but I remember being in classes I had no business being in. I'm not sure it felt like torture where we're learning how to subtract one log from log four or five log, whatever. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how I'm ever going to use this again. I remember sitting in algebra. My my 11-year-old daughter already comes home to me and goes, I'm not ever going to do this in real life. Right? And I'm like, well, she didn't know that I sat at my desk this week trying to do an algebra problem to figure out how much money I needed to send to somebody to cover the charge. That put it. And I'm like, well, sometimes you might use it. Right? But do you remember that? You're sitting there in that math class, and you're going, there's no way that this has anything to do with me. You're sitting in science, and you're learning all the elements and all the stuff. Man, you're going, I, I don't know how I'm going to use this one day if I, you know, in, in business. We can know a truth, we can know a reality, but we don't embrace it until we really grasp how it has personal import for us. So we're taking a couple of weeks as we press into Christmas because here's a reality that I know is true, especially for us here in the Bible Belt South where everybody knows the story about Jesus and everybody knows that no matter how big Frosty and Santa are in the yard, we got to have a sign somewhere that says that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? we got to make sure we stamp that in. We kind of know the story, but if, if we're not careful, I've, I've had this experience, we come to Christmas time and we kind of know the story and we kind of know what it's supposed to be about and we kind of know how it's supposed to affect us and make us feel and how we should be excited. But if we're honest, Christmas becomes something different that's detached from all that. And we don't really focus on that. And that doesn't really light our hearts up. And that doesn't really move us. It's lost its personal importance to us. And so we want to focus for a couple of weeks just on what is it that Jesus' coming means for us. As we look in the book of Matthew, we're reading what is called a gospel account. There are four of those in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's kind of tricky sometimes. It hadn't been around it. The word gospel is in the Bible multiple times, but when it's in the, in the Scriptures, the word gospel, it actually is talking about the story of what Jesus has done to make us acceptable to God, to save us from the penalty of our sins. When we see the word gospel in the Scriptures, it's talking about the truths, the ideas, that there's a holy God who rescued sinful people like me through the sacrifice of his solely sufficient son, Jesus. When we read a gospel, we're reading a narrative account written down like a story, an account of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's a story form writing of those gospel facts so that others could read the story and put their faith in Jesus and have their lives changed. That's what we're reading as we look at Matthew, at the point that we're jumping into Matthew, Jesus has started to minister publicly. He started to teach. He started to do some miracles. And in response to all this teaching, in response to these miracles, some people have said, absolutely, I want to be where he is. I'm following him around. And some of those were for the right reasons. They wanted to know more about him. They wanted to honor him. Some of those wanted to follow him around. In John chapter 6 comes to mind, they just wanted the belly full. <laughs> he had fed some people miraculously, and they go, we want to eat, right? So some followed him, others doubted him, some hated him, some plotted and schemed against him. There were various responses to Jesus' ministry. And what we see is that the ones who followed him faithfully, the ones who followed him sincerely with right motivations did so because they understood, at least in some degree, how Jesus and his life was to personally impact their lives. We see that the ones who responded differently, we'll see a couple examples today, 
but they just didn't get it. This is Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Let's just pause there and make sure we grasp the fullness of what's going on. It's the story of Jesus calling one of his apostles, one of his closest disciples that he would lead and walk with and minister with and teach for three years on the earth. One of the people that would be used to, to start the church after the resurrection of Jesus. He finds him, though, in a peculiar place. It says he finds Matthew, who's also called Levi in, in some other places in the New Testament. It finds him, he says, at his tax booth. So that means that this guy is one of these special people who gets his own category for sinners. We just saw it called tax collectors. <laughs> it's not enough for these people just to be called sinners or bad folks. No, when we say sinners, we go, man, they are sinners. And then you have to add in and tax collectors because they're so bad that they don't even fit. They, they bust up out of the category of sinner. Tax collectors were the most despised, the most horrific people in Jewish culture in this day. And the reason is because they were leveraging opportunity for themselves. They were leveraging Roman government power to collect taxes from their own people, the Jewish people. And instead of just collecting what was required to be collected by the Roman government, the Roman government said, if you get us our percentage, you can tack on as much as you'd like. Get everything you can get. Just give us our percentage. And so guys like Matthew would, would grow rich and grow wealthy off of taking money wrongfully from the Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's a guy like that sitting at the table in the act of doing his tax collecting, sitting at his tax booth, likely with some Roman guards around him to protect him because they knew they had to protect this guy, the hatred was so strong. It says he's sitting there at his tax booth, and as Jesus is walking by, highlight this in your heart if you don't hear anything else today, it says that Jesus saw him. <laughs> Jesus saw a man named Matthew. Now, I'm just making sure we're all on the same page here. If Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus knows about everything just as much as he always has. Matthew is not a new idea to Jesus' mind. This is not new information, but Jesus intentionally saw Matthew. He walked through a crowd of people. He walked past the crowd at the tax booth, but the one that he saw, the one that he noticed, the one that he showed personal attention to was the one who was the most despised, the one who was doing the most heinous thing to all those who would have been standing around and watching If you don't hear anything else today, please hear this, that Jesus never gives grace from a distance. He never gives grace from a distance, but Jesus always gives grace through his personal presence. Right? Jesus is never going, hey, if you pray to me, if you send me that prayer from way off and afar, it'll arrive here in a three or four days, and I'll decide and maybe respond to it, and I'll ship you back some favor. I'll ship you back some kindness and say, okay, I like you enough to grant your request. He's never sending us things detached from himself. He's never blessing us away from his person. Jesus brings grace in the person of himself. But man, it's so often not the way that we think about interacting with God. We so often think about the things that we're asking God for. 
We so often think of God, please give me from a distance this. But, but what does it mean for us to set our focus on, God, I'm interacting with you here in this moment because you personally bring grace. Because without thinking that way, we're not walking sincerely with Jesus. We're walking in regimented, empty religion. And we're walking in something that's not honoring Jesus as it should and not blessing us as it should when we're accepting what we think are blessings from a distant God. I worked for a few years in higher education at a university in the IT department. And I would be on call on some weekends. And on those weekends, I had to have remote desktop access to my work computer so that I could be at home and I knew the right passwords and logins and I could actually operate my desk computer in my office from my laptop at home. I could make it do things in case I needed to log in on the weekend and fix a problem. Well, one weekend I was on call and I was doing some things on my work computer from my home laptop and it hit me all of a sudden because I'm a rascal that that our secretary, who I loved and we cut up all the time, her name was Mary, and she happened to be in the office working that day. And it hit me and I thought, you know what I could do? Because I could access my computer and my computer has control of the office printer. I could send things to the printer even though I'm not there and Marion will have no idea where it's coming from. And so I started sending her messages because I was working for two or three hours. I started sending messages. Get back to work. Quit fooling around. <laughs> now, I don't know if she was working or not, right? But get back to work. Quit fooling around. And I just would have loved to have been a fly on the wall as a printer. She hadn't sent anything to print, but she hears it fire up and, and it's printing through. And she goes in and says, get back to work. And I was sending her messages. Sent her two or three different little messages like that. And then I sent one and said, Marion, I'm talking to you. I didn't want her to think that somehow she was getting somebody else's messages. And so I'm just messing with her from a distance, not knowing how she's receiving it. We didn't interact at all on the phone or anything that day. I honestly completely forgot about it for several days somehow. But on like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of that week, somewhere in there, it finally hit me. And I said, hey, Mary. And she said, yeah. I said, hey, the other day you were working on, on Saturday. I knew you had to work. She said, yeah. I said, did you get some kind of weird messages? And a light bulb went off in her head. And she said, Jason, you're wrong for fooling with me like that in here. <laughs> had me scared. Right? <laughs> it didn't make any sense to her. She didn't have a box to place it in in her mind to understand why would these messages just be showing up for me? And as ridiculous as that is and as fun as that moment was, and I am not sorry, just being honest. <laughs> Marion, I doubt you listen. If you are, I love you, girl. I'm not sorry, right? As silly as that moment was, it ought to be just as silly for us to think of this personal God who sent his son not just to bless us and be here for a moment. He didn't come for a weekend visit to bring blessing. He came to be with us, to dwell with us. That personal God is the God that we serve. It should be ridiculous and ludicrous for us to think that we have to be beggars from a distance to a God who would airmail us in and send us. God brings us grace personal presence. Man, some of us get weirded out. We start talking about the presence of God. Maybe we've experienced some things in, in different settings, and we go, man, I don't know exactly what that means. It's okay for you to be in that place. I'm in that place sometimes, too, but the place that we can't let ourselves live is a place that's satisfied without seeking out the personal presence of God, who says that he will lead us like a shepherd personally, who knows our names, and we know his leading. It doesn't matter what you're 
Christian background is, it doesn't matter how you read the scriptures, it says it clearly. This is our God. Jesus looks at and those despised and he noticed him. Do you know today that Jesus notices you? He notices you now as you sit and you hear his word. But he notices you too when you're in the moment of your greatest rebellion against him. He notices you. See that Matthew didn't call out and go, hey, Jesus. He wasn't looking for his attention. He wasn't trying to get it. Maybe he thought there's no way he'll pay attention to me. I know I've done too much against the people that he loved. Or maybe he just wasn't interested at all and he was happy with his wealth and where he was. But for whatever reason, he's not calling out to Jesus and yet Jesus noticed him. And I just want you to hear today, please try to believe fresh in you. If it's grown dusty and stale to you, Jesus notices you. He cares about you. Does he care about us as a church collectively? Absolutely. Does he move in us collectively? Absolutely. But he does that as he works individually in us, leading his people, and then we unite with him. He cares for you. I'm mindful of the verse now that calls us to cast all of our cares, or some translations would say, all of our anxieties upon him. And then it tells us why. Because he cares for us. That seems so simple, but it's the most impactful thing we've ever heard if we would just believe that the God of the universe notices us, cares for us, and brings us joys through his personal presence. And you see that what happened is, as Jesus comes up and says, follow me, this would have been the invitation of a rabbi. So if you were Growing up in Jewish culture as a guy, you would have studied the scriptures and learned so much as a boy growing up. And at a certain age, you would have kind of aged out. Probably a window of three, four years there where you ended up going to work based on family need. Or or some of that may have been based on how well you did or didn't take to studying the scriptures. But it was an honor if if a known rabbi would come and look at you and say, follow me. That was his invitation to be a disciple of his. And that's exactly what Jesus is honoring Matthew with. And so they end up at his house. And see what happens when they get to his house? People have seen that Jesus loves somebody like that. And so all of a sudden it said in the verses we read that tax collectors and sinners started showing up unprovoked. See, Jesus was that weird kind of holy that made people who were sinners and aware of their sin want to be around him. He wasn't the kind of holy that made people who had sin in their lives go, get away from him. It's going to be misery if I'm near that guy. Jesus drew the messy. He brought mercy to the messy. And people flocked around him. So we probably are familiar with this idea that Jesus notices sinners. We're familiar with the idea that Jesus will come near to sinners. But if we're being honest, there's probably also something in the back of our flesh, in the back of our pride that goes, yeah, I know that he does that, but there's a limit, right? I know that that he will be near sinners, but he's not going to go towards just every sinner, right? Because there's some that are just, those those are the kind of questions that seem to flow from really legalistic, religious territories, right? We're going to see it in verse 11. These people are crowded around Jesus, and we're told this, verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat? with tax collectors and sinners. So the the Pharisees, these guys who supposedly know God the best, the God who the Bible tells us is love. So they supposedly know the 
the triune God, the God that is the personification of love, that is the one who lives out the radical commitment to the advancement and well-being of another more than anybody ever could. They supposedly know him better than anyone, and yet when they see him in the flesh, Jesus sitting with the ones that society looks down on, the ones whose lives are a mess, the one who they couldn't imagine being around themselves. They look and they go, why? Why? Why are you around them? They're asking the disciples, why is this teacher, this one who's developing a following, this one who teaches with authority, this one who's displayed that he can do miracles, people will pay attention to him. He could have clout. He could really bring a movement for the freedom of the Jewish people in the way that they had imagined. Why would this guy sit with them? See, legalism would always confine God's love to its own limits. How do we know when we're brushing up against somebody and, and not that we're, look, look, we become legalists if we look at them and start to judge them and want to throw rocks at them. <laughs> we return in their favor. So we're not talking about how do we look at them and look down on them, but we're saying how do we recognize it when we see it in others? More importantly even than that, how do we recognize it when we see it in our own selves? When our following of Jesus doesn't look as much like Jesus as it does like regimented rules about our behavior. We know it because that legalistic idea, that legalistic notion in us would confine God's love to, to safe, comfortable limits. Whatever feels good to me is whatever's safe to me. And what we see is that these guys, these Pharisees who supposedly know God so well, it's not that they get that Jesus is saying, I'm about love and that's what I'm trying to show. And they go, no, 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 I don't want to be about that. They, they literally are just bewildered and their minds are blown by a Savior, by one claiming to be this teacher, this leader who would love people. They just can't grasp it. It doesn't fit in their minds. We were in small groups my wife and I, with several other couples a few years ago, and the conversation had turned to our kids. And I don't remember how we got there, but we were particularly talking about when they were born. And There was a couple in the group, friends of ours, Blake and Amanda. They have three kids. We have three kids. Kids are close enough in age, pretty close. And So I think we just kind of assume, you know, like we're all kind of around the same age group, right? And they have these three kids, Addison, Austin. They're pretty close in age, and then they've got kind of the caboose down in the back who's a few years younger. Her name's Arden. And as we're talking about our kids being born, Amanda, the mom, she says, well, you know, I was, I was 28 when Arden was born. Arden at this point is only like two years old, right? Maybe two. So I was, yeah, I was 28 when Arden was born. And my wife looks at her and says, no, 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 Arden. She says, yeah, I was, I was 28. And my wife thinking that she's talking about when Addison was born or thinking about maybe she's got it mixed up in her head and she's thinking about when the son also was born says again to her, no, no, Amanda, Arden, how old were you when Arden was born? And she says, I was 28. And, and if, if, I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. My wife literally looked at her, and other people in the room were starting to look at me and look at my wife like, what is happening? And I had that look on my face that I get every once in a while. It's not often at home because my wife is awesome and incredible. But every once in a while, I get this look on my face like, I don't know how to say this differently, right? It's like, I don't know what I, I don't know. It's not your fault. It's me. I don't know how to say that that crayon's red any more clearly than that, right? So, right, I, she's, I got that look. They're looking at me, and, and my wife looks at Amanda one more time and goes, Arden, Arden. <laughs> and Amanda goes, I know, 28. And we all die out laughing, and we finally figure out that they're a few years younger than us, by the way. 
But I think about that moment, and it's kind of been a, a kind of a little bit of a symbol for me in my mind of how the Pharisees were sometimes, and maybe even sometimes how the disciples were when there's something clear sitting right in front of their face, but their mentality is so boxed in that it just cannot penetrate. When we assume that the God who calls himself love won't go to this guy or that person, when we decide that, hey, he has, has reached through the depths of my sin and depravity and he has rescued me, but I won't let that same hero move my feet to go over there to him or to her or to that neighborhood or to that place or to that group because I know what they're about. We're displaying hearts that are unlike the grace of our Father. Who is the person in your life? Maybe it's a cousin. Maybe it's a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe you grew up here your whole life, and there's somebody who, man, they really, really bothered you really hard in high school. And that was 30 years ago, and you still sit and passively give them the smallest glass of kindness. You'll be in the same room with them, but you're not going to interact. You're not going to say anything rude, but you're not going to say anything kind. I just say to you, not from any sense of hoping that you would bow your head in shame, but can I just say to you as an opportunity to you that if we will risk it and step in faith to embrace the kind of love that God gives and take it to the world around us, we might have our mind blown at what a beautiful picture of his love and grace he lives out through us. Do we have the same kind of heart as Jesus when it comes to who we are and who we love and who we're not towards? Or do we have a list of reasons and rules and man, it can get so complicated about why I wouldn't love them. Listen, I'm not, I'm not asking you to, to do things that are unwise. Don't, whatever, I don't know. I don't know what your reasons would be. I'm just simply asking you if over all of our consideration of the kind of people we're going to be, Dublin Bible Church, of the kind of church collectively that we're going to be, Dublin Bible Church, if over all those considerations could just hang the word love. And you can go, I don't know how this fits to this, but I know that the love of Jesus has reached me and I want it to reach you. When you know that you're noticed, it does something to your heart and you grow intentional in making sure others know that they're noticed. Now, that's not what the Pharisees saw. They went, hey, why would he sit with them? They had limits. We're going to see that Jesus actually does give limits for those who would receive his mercy, but it's not where they would have expected finish out these verses. Verse 12 says this. But when he heard it, being Jesus, he heard this question that the Pharisees were asking. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. This is going to quote from the Old Testament. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, this is where Jesus tells us, this is why I came. So as we come to Christmas season and we're going, he came, I'm so excited, but I don't really always remember why him coming impacts my life. He's telling us here, here's why I came. This is one of his reasons. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. <laughs> See, Jesus' limit for who will be powerfully impacted by his mercy is not one of morality. 
because when it is one of self-identification of one of the six who's in need. It's not that he would limit who would have his love, that he would say these kind of people, or if you've crossed over this certain line, or you've done this certain sin, there's no way. It's not that Jesus would say that. It's that we must humble ourselves to recognize ourselves as the sinners, as the sick that he came to rescue. Mercy, we talked about it before. It's a word we see a lot in Scripture. It's important to the heart of God. Mercy is the authoritative withholding of punishment. It means that somebody who has the opportunity to punish you has the authority to make the decision and says, I'll withhold that. I won't do that. Even if it's deserved, I won't do that. Jesus says, I didn't come for sacrifice. I didn't come to see you continually over and over having to go through the process of displaying the guilt of your sin and the forgiveness of your sin and being all this work. I came so that those who need mercy will have mercy. And understand this, Jesus' mercy will be personally powerful when we grasp the greatness of our need for it. When we've marked ourselves as those, not just who needed it one day 20 years ago before the Lord set me straight, but when we wake up every day and we realize I'm one of those who is awake by the mercies that await for me new this morning. You ever think about that? That you're asleep for hours of your day doing absolutely nothing to sustain yourself and there's a God who's going, love you, got you, keeping you. And we wake up to him being merciful to us every day when we recognize that we are the ones who are in need of mercy, we will be so impacted by it. Personally, we'll start to actually trust, not just say, but really trust with our hearts that our God likes us. That our God likes it when we crawl up in his lap. That our God likes us to come and talk to him about things, even if we're telling him things, that he's sitting there like a wise father going, yeah, that's not even accurate what you're saying. But I like that you're talking to me. When we trust that we're people who need mercy, when we see Jesus as one who came to pour it out lavishly on us, we'll be people who will be moved toward our God, and we'll be people who are moved toward other people to show that same mercy. I need to encapsulate, I'll just share this. Have you noticed that when you're in despair, you don't tend to think about etiquette? <laughs> like when you're really, really in need, you're not really thinking about, hey, am I saying the right thing or am I asking in the right way? There's no embarrassment about asking for help when you feel like your life's on the line and you don't know what to do about it. You're just doing anything you can to get some help had a friend when I was a kid named Brad. I'd ride my house to, my, my, I'd ride my house. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz riding in my house. Anyways, right, I would ride my bike to his house. That makes more sense. I would ride my bike to his house, and one of our other buddies named Scott lived right next door, and I didn't know Scott as well as Brad did. They were really good friends, but Scott had a trampoline, and so the end goal was for me to get on the trampoline. So I would go over to Brad's house. We'd hang out, have a good time. Now, I'd be like, hey, you want to go jump on Scott's trampoline? He'd be like, sure. we go over and jump on Scott's trampoline. I rode over to Brad's house one day, and I, I pulled up uphill driveway on my bike, and I got to the top, and I saw that the garage door was up, and only one of their cars was there, the cars that they actually used the most. None of them were around. It's kind of a weird thing because I thought he'd be there, so I started trying to look around, figure out what to do. There were no cell phones back in those days, kiddo. <laughs> I'm not necessarily the most, like, let's just go for it kind of person, so there was a thought of maybe I'd just get back on my bike, go home. With all the ribbing that I took for what I'm about to tell you, I kind of wish I would have. 
I decide, no, I'm going to go for it. So the garage door's up. So I think I'll just go into the garage where the car's parked, and there's a door that goes into the den downstairs, goes into the rest of the house. I'll just go knock on that door, see if anybody's in there. So I kind of tentatively walk up to the door, <laughs> and right as I get to the door, somebody starts to open the door. I see the door handle start to move. As I'm reaching for it, the door handle starts to turn. Now I'm at Brad's house. His name's Brad Grovel. And as this door opens, I'm so scared. I don't know if I've ever been more scared in my life. Weird tumbleweeds felt like they were blowing in the background. Nowhere is everybody at. Somebody's in this house. As the door started to open, as I reached out, I screamed out, and I said, Miss Gravitt! Now, I don't know why I didn't call for Mr. Gravitt. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't call for Brad. For some reason, in my head was, his mama will take care of me. <laughs> so when I was scared to death, and I just went, Miss Gravitt! And the funniest part of the story is that on the other side of the door opening it, now scared to death at my screaming, was none other than Miss Gravit. <laughs> she was more scared of me than I was of her, I promise you. And for years, like my friends would be like, hey, Brad's mom's over there, look out. Miss <laughs> 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 Gravit! <laughs> but see, when I, when I think my life's on the line, I'm not worried about what my buddies think. When I'm like scared out of my mind and I'm going, if there's somebody on the other side of this door who's been robbing this house, I've got nothing to do anything about that with other than let them beat me up. I'll just offer them my face freely. They can just pound it in and they won't be, make it quicker. When I think it's hopeless, I'm just yelling out for help. And I'm using that silly little story to help us see and understand. I pray, God, that when we see ourselves as the people who benefit from the rich mercy of God, and when we remember that we're still those people who live by his mercy, who need his mercy, we will call out to him and go, God, mercy. And he will find us. He'll be standing right there. When we ID ourselves as the ones who need his mercy. And it's not just those over there where they need his mercy because they really are in the dark. But there are us as well. Then I can be powerfully impacted by the mercy of Jesus in my life. And then I'll become a glad and eager messenger of the mercy of Jesus to other people's lives. Jesus brings mercy to the messy. So if you're sitting here today and you're going, yeah, Messy is what I would, I would probably put in that category. That would I do my life that way. Jesus came to put his mercy on your life. The message of the gospel is not that we cleaned ourselves up and so God noticed us. It's not that we cried out loud enough so he paid attention. It's that while we were in our sin, while we were spiritually dead, so to speaking, we weren't crying out, asking, proving, doing anything. He noticed came to us and he called to us by name that is the grace of the gospel some of us today just need to wrap our hearts around that 